Good morning, family. Good morning. So this morning we're going to read Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9. Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle of all his furnishing exactly like the porting. I will show you. John 1, 14. The word become flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Good morning. I want to wish you a Merry Pentecost Sunday, if I can do that. Uh, we have certainly enjoyed uh, the presence of the Spirit already this morning, and we expect and hope that he will continue with us. Um, I wanted to begin here by just saying that when I was uh, pastoring at Renfrew Baptist in Calgary, uh, our family lived on one side of the church in the parsonage, and then on the opposite side of the church across the street lived our associate pastor. So we used to joke together uh, about the gridlock on the sidewalk on the way to work because we didn't have any drive into, into uh, church. Um, I thought of that story as I sat on the 15 today gridlocked and unable to move. And uh, I, I, I was reminded of Psalm 7, which talks about mischief returning on your own head. And uh, if you dig a pit, you'll fall into it. So anyway, we're here. We're glad we're here. And uh, before we open the word again, let's uh, pray and approach the Father. Dear God in heaven, we are asking this morning your blessing on your word during this time. We ask your spirit's rich and close presence with us. Uh, we pray, make us alert to the things in your word. Help us to walk through this part of Exodus uh, glorying in you, Father, and in the Son, and in the Spirit. And we pray that as we leave later uh, this morning, that again, we would be changed uh, for this time that we have spent together worshiping you in music and in your word. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's sermon is the 15th sermon uh, in a series of 18 sermons on the book of Exodus, so we're nearing the end of our journey through this very foundational, very epic biblical book. But I want you to recall with me the beginning of our journey. As the story of Exodus began, we were given a picture in Exodus chapter 1 of a people group enslaved, a people group forced to undertake building projects by the order of Pharaoh. And we noted, as we ventured through that first chapter of the book of Exodus, that, that much of the chapter is also marked by the absence of God. God does not make any explicit 
appearances, at least in those first initial verses of Exodus. Well, as we arrive this morning at the latter chapters of the book now, what we notice is that the situation for Israel has changed in dramatic fashion since the beginning. Now, toward the close of Exodus, the people are once again involved in a building project, but this time they are glad and willing to do it because God, and not Pharaoh, is the architect. The people who had been forced to build store cities for Pharaoh at the start of Exodus are now free from Egypt, and they are building the tabernacle for God. And the tabernacle signifies nothing less than the presence of King Yahweh in the camp. The tabernacle narrative is massively important in the book of Exodus. Now, the commentator Victor Hamilton helps us understand something of the weightiness and the importance of the tabernacle narrative by pointing out that it gets almost one-third of the space in Exodus, one-third or 13 chapters more or less. Now, by contrast, the actual Exodus out of Egypt got only two chapters, and not even one chapter was devoted to the Ten Commandments. So just by the sheer space that's devoted to the tabernacle in Exodus, I think it's clear that we are being beckoned as readers to see that something momentous and something very crucial and important is going on with the tabernacle. Now, if you're keeping track of the structural aspects of Exodus, as we've been walking through, the tabernacle narrative can be divided quite neatly into three basic sections. So first we have Exodus 25 through 31, which gives us the instructions for the tabernacle. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the instructions. These chapters essentially lay out God's blueprint for the tabernacle. And then the second section, Exodus 32 to 34, is something of an interruption in the story. In those chapters, the focus is put on Israel's transgression, on their sin, as they engage in an unauthorized building project called the Golden Calf. And then finally, we have Exodus 35 through 40, which give us what can be called the executional chapters of the tabernacle narrative. In other words, despite the sin of the golden calf, listen, God, in much grace, allowed Israel to go ahead and actually build the tabernacle. And so there you have the basic structure of Exodus 25 through 40. All we want to do today is zero in on a few select verses in just the first section, Exodus 25 through 31. These are really foundational verses to the whole narrative. And we also this morning want to highlight just some of the thematic and symbolic stuff that's going on with the tabernacle. So that's the plan. So first of all, open your Bible and we'll look at the verses. Come with me to Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. The verses that were read for us earlier. These verses have Yahweh saying to Moses, And let them make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, within those two verses, there are four words in particular that are crucial, I think, for us to grapple with if we would understand the nature and the purpose and the character of the tabernacle. The words that I have in mind, the four words, are those words, sanctuary, dwell, pattern, and tabernacle. Sanctuary, dwell, pattern, and tabernacle. And we want to spend time meditating just a little bit on each of these four words. So first of all, something of a language lesson here, the word translated into English as the word sanctuary. Focus on that word for a minute. Track with me here. The English word sanctuary actually comes from the Latin sancer or sanctus, which means sacred or holy. So then the English word sanctuary carries with it connotations of holiness. And the English word sanctuary carrying those implications of holiness is not a bad translation of the Hebrew word in the original text of Exodus 25.8 because that Hebrew word, mikdash, derives from a Hebrew root meaning holy. The upshot of all this language stuff is that God intended the tabernacle complex to have a holy quality about it. A holy quality. Because, after all, this building or this physical complex called the tabernacle was the place where Yahweh himself dwelt and Yahweh was holy. The tabernacle, including fence, courtyard, tabernacle proper, furniture, it was all holy ground, sacred ground. It housed Yahweh, so to speak. And in the book of Leviticus, there are certain laws there which command a reverent respect for the holy tabernacle. Steps were to be taken to ensure that the tabernacle was never profaned. Again, the main occupant of the tabernacle was a holy God. No cavalier or flippant approaches to Yahweh's home were acceptable. And so again, behind that word sanctuary in the English Bible, very important, is the idea of the holy nature of the tabernacle. The people in the camp must always bear in mind the transcendence, the otherness, the holiness of Yahweh. And they must conduct themselves accordingly. That's the first word of our four in Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Sanctuary. A holy place. It helps us understand something about the nature of this thing called the tabernacle. Well, the second and third words that can be grouped together, I think, are those words dwell and tabernacle. Notice in verse 8 that we're given there the governing purpose of the tabernacle. The governing purpose of this building was to have Yahweh dwell 
in the midst of the people. Just as Yahweh had once walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, enjoying the fellowship of his creatures, now Yahweh wanted to dwell not in some place isolated outside the camp, but rather right there in the midst of his people. And this is really worth pondering for a moment, because with the presence of Yahweh in the camp would come automatic benefits for the people, namely joy, Isaiah 12:6, protection and confidence, Psalm 27, provision, life and light, Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9, and goodness and holiness, Psalm 65, 4, at least those things. For frail, vulnerable, temporal human beings like you and I, to have God camp out with us, to be mobile with us, even, even as the people of Israel packed up the tabernacle and moved to another camping location, to have him present with them like this, dwelling with them. This was a thing of staggering consequence, we need to understand, staggering benefit. So dwell is our second word. And then that word tabernacle. Look at that word in Exodus 25.9. Probably, I think, an even better rendering into English of the Hebrew word here would be dwelling place instead of tabernacle, dwelling place. The idea is, again, Yahweh was really there, really tangibly present with the people, imminent in their midst, dwelling with them in this particular place, even though at the same time, as we've said, Yahweh was holy. He was separate from them. Do you see the tension here? The tension with the tabernacle is that the holy, eternal, uncreated God who spoke the very universe into being and who was creator of creatures, nevertheless, he accommodated himself to encamp in the dust of the desert with a lowly group of former slaves. Yes, the tension we find in the tabernacle is that the God who cannot be contained in heaven or the highest heaven, 1 Kings 8.27, the God whose presence is everywhere, Psalm 139.7, the God who himself fills heaven and earth, Jeremiah 23.24, this God stooped low to dwell in a specific, very unremarkable location with his people. But let's hasten on to our fourth word of the four in Exodus 25, 8 and 9. The fourth word is that word, pattern. The people were to build the tabernacle exactly according to the pattern that Yahweh would show. The question that's a little vexing here is, what pattern exactly did Yahweh show Moses? What is the pattern 
that Yahweh is referring to here in verse 9. Did Yahweh provide Moses with some sort of divinely given blueprint or some sort of small-scale model of what Yahweh wanted for the construction of the tabernacle? Or another option is maybe Yahweh permitted Moses a vision of the heavenly sanctuary upon which the earthly tabernacle was to be modeled. We're not totally settled on the answer here, but either way, the important point is this. We need to see here that the tabernacle was divinely conceived from top to bottom. And it was to be constructed on earth according to the precise divine instruction that Yahweh would give. When building the tabernacle, there was to be absolutely no guesswork involved. There was to be no human improvisation allowed. As Daniel Block has written, the tabernacle was, quote, indeed a sacred structure sanctioned, designed, and legitimized by the one who would reside in it, close quote. We need to see here that Israel was to undertake the construction of God's mobile home, his tabernacle, on God's terms, not on their terms. Very important. And in the process, what would the people learn? They would be learning from God something about the proper approach to his holy presence. Well, we've walked through those four important words in Exodus 25, 8, and 9. Again, just to recap, what we're taught as we look closely at the four words is that God desired a holy place in which to dwell or reside alongside his people, and he would dwell in an up-close and personal way. And this place was to be constructed according to God's exacting pattern. But now let's deepen into the tabernacle and what's going on with the tabernacle even more. Are you ready for this? With a host of theologians and biblical commentators backing me up, I contend that what the tabernacle is, in fact, is it's God redoing the Garden of Eden. Watch this. Let me rehearse for you several things that happened in Genesis 1 through 3 the Garden of Eden story, and at each point that I'm going to give you here, I'll try to show you how it gets taken up and rehashed, represented in the tabernacle story. First, in Genesis 1-2, we learn that the Spirit of God was attending the moment of creation. He was hovering over the face of the deep. And not only that, Over in Proverbs chapter 3, we learn that as God created the world, the three specific attributes of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge were at work. Well, in the tabernacle narrative, the Spirit of God is likewise attending the work. Specifically, he is filling a specific craftsman named Bezalel, Exodus 31, 2 and 3. And the Spirit in Exodus 31, 3 gives Bezalel wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. 
precisely the same trio of characteristics that had characterized God himself as he created the world. So this parallel suggests a real connection between the Eden creation story and the tabernacle story. Secondly, in the creation story of Genesis 1, the six days of creation there are punctuated, if we read Genesis 1, they're punctuated repeatedly with the phrase, and God said, before God finally takes Sabbath rest on day 7. Well, in the tabernacle instructions, we have seven occurrences, very key, of the phrase, and the Lord said. The phrase is interspersed through the instructional section, and interestingly enough, the seventh occurrence of that phrase introduces a focus on Sabbath. Third, in the original creation, we have God giving a variety of trees, Genesis 2.9, arboreal imagery there. He also gives a variety of beautiful minerals and stones, Genesis 2.11 and 12. In the tabernacle, God commands a tree-like lampstand full of arboreal imagery, Exodus 25, 31 to 36. God commands in the tabernacle precious stones to be included in the tabernacle ornaments, Exodus 25, 7, 11, 17, and 31. So there's another parallel between Eden and the tabernacle. Fourth, the Garden of Eden from which Adam and Eve were exiled featured an east entrance where cherubim were stationed, Genesis 3, 23, and 24. Similarly, the tabernacle had an east-facing entrance, Exodus 27, 13, and cherubim were also included in the design of the curtains and on the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Fifth, what was the main feature of the Garden of Eden? The presence of God was. With the tabernacle, same thing. Its very purpose is the presence of God. All of these parallels between Eden and the tabernacle suggest, I think in a fairly strong way, that the tabernacle was purposed by God to be a new Eden. Peace between God and human beings Fellowship between God and human beings had been ruptured in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. Now there was a restoration afoot with the revelation of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, we need to understand, is a new creation that parallels the creation of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, friends, if this is true, and I believe it is, then it sure makes some sense out of what happens in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, we have the golden calf. We have people falling away from God right after the instructions for the new Eden are given in Genesis 20, or Exodus 25 through 31. So just like we had Eden created in Genesis 1 and 2, followed by the falling away from God, Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, so we have in the tabernacle and then the golden calf. And God responded to Adam and Eve's transgression in the immediate by giving them clothing, we remember, in grace. In grace he gave them clothing, 
God responds to the golden calf by granting, in amazing grace, the green light to go ahead and build the tabernacle where he still intends to dwell, amazingly, even with the fact of Israel's sin so freshly in the picture. The tabernacle is a new Eden, and the golden calf of Exodus 32 is a new Genesis 3, fall into sin, which is then followed as it had been in Genesis 3 by the grace of God in allowing Israel to rebuild or to build the tabernacle after all. Well, let's talk further about the tabernacle complex itself. We're moving all this toward a, I want to say grand conclusion, but maybe not so grand. We'll see. Let's talk further about the tabernacle complex itself and some of its furniture. Now, first of all, the tabernacle complex, fence, courtyard, tabernacle proper, furniture, it was to be located significantly in the center of Israel's camp. Why the center of the camp? Well, in Timothy Pierce's book on Old Testament worship, he explains it this way. I think this is good. Pierce says, The placement of the tent in the center of the camp, Numbers 2.17, had important significance. Such a placement was compared to the tent of the king in a military camp of New Kingdom Egypt. In this tent, the king would meet foreign dignitaries and direct the plans and goals of his army. Yahweh had just destroyed the gods of Egypt through the plagues and the crossing of the sea, and he was about to lead the children of Israel into warfare in Canaan, so such a placement speaks volumes, close quote. Yes. With the tabernacle in the center of Israel's camp, the divine king was taking his position to direct the affairs of Israel. Now concerning the specs of the tabernacle itself, let's talk about this. On the east side of the tabernacle complex, outside the tent, was the courtyard where the bronze basin and the altar for burnt offering were located. Then the tabernacle itself was a rectangular tent, 45 feet by 15 feet and 15 feet high. Inside the tent were two basic zones, which were separated by a curtain. You had the holy place, 30 feet long by 15 feet wide. And then you had the most holy place, which was cubicle in shape, 15 foot sides in each direction. You entered the holy place on the eastern side of this of the tent, and, and once inside the holy place, you saw three items there. You saw the altar of incense, you saw the table of the bread of the presence, and you saw the lampstand. On the western side, the most holy place, it was separated off by the curtain, and it was home to only one item, the Ark of the Covenant. So those are the basic specs of the tabernacle complex. Now, say you were the high priest, and once per year you moved from the courtyard, then into the holy place, and finally into the most holy place. What you'd notice is that there was a noteworthy progression of heightened 
holiness, the further toward the most holy place you came. And this progression of heightened holiness was signified by the increasing value of the metals and the textiles that were used the closer you got to the most holy place. From courtyard to holy place to most holy place, you went from bronze to silver to gold and then finally to pure gold. You went from goat's hair to crimson to purple to blue. And even the workmanship itself went from good to better to best the further you proceeded. And of course, the closer you ventured toward the most holy place, the more restricted was the access. Tremper Longman explains it this way. He says, Gentiles and unclean Israelites lived outside the camp. Israel lives inside the camp, but only Levites in camp in the immediate vicinity of the tabernacle, and they also have the easiest access to its holy precincts. But even the priests, says Longman, have restrictions. Indeed, according to Leviticus 16, only one man, the high priest, and only once a year could enter the most holy place indicating just how holy it was. The gradations or the levels of holiness, the further you got toward the most holy place, indicated in a very profound and powerful way the holiness of the one who occupied the most holy place. There was a sobriety and a reverence and an on-your-toes sort of care that needed to happen when you were around the tabernacle. Now, we don't have time to talk in detail about every piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It would take too long. Let me just briefly highlight two pieces. Uh, First of all, the lampstand, otherwise known as the menorah. The menorah, or lampstand, was located in the holy place. Now, at the original creation of the world, God had provided light for the world. Let there be light. We have a very sunny day today, and it's beautiful. In this new creation called the tabernacle, God did the same thing. The lampstand with its lamps was, in fact, the only means of light inside the tent. The text of Exodus 25.40 indicates to us that the tabernacle lampstand was patterned in heaven, The design for it came out of the divine mind. And the lampstand featured seven branches, seven branches, probably to signify what Bruce Waltke has called the complete light of God's presence. The complete light of God's presence, seven being a number of completion. The lampstand was decorated gorgeously with arboreal artwork, so flowers, almond blossoms, branches. Probably these were intended to recall the tree of life in Eden and the attendant presence of God in the Garden of Eden. When the lamps on each of the seven branches were lit up, light was diffused 
to the table of bread just opposite, and on that table were 12 loaves signifying the 12 tribes of Israel so that the 12 loaves then lived in the light that was shining on them from the lampstand. The 12 tribes lived in the light and the blessing of the presence of God. That was the idea. The lampstand. Well, the second piece of tabernacle furniture that I want to bring to your attention briefly, which is much more important, in fact, is the ark or the chest, the box. It was made of acacia wood and it was overlaid with pure gold. This ark or box was the only piece of furniture, as we've said, located in the most holy place. And significantly, it's the ark in the narrative. It's the ark that gets discussed first in Exodus 25. It's discussed first because the ark is the most important item in the tabernacle. Why is it most important? Well, because the ark is where God's holy presence is focused. The ark, as Peter Enns has said, is the central point of contact between heaven and the tabernacle. This Ark of the Covenant was relatively small. It was a little less than four feet long and 29 inches wide and also 29 inches high. It was outfitted with gold-covered carrying poles on either side of it, fitted through gold rings, and the poles were never to be removed. The purpose of the poles was to prevent human beings from touching the actual ark itself since the ark was so unique in its holiness. Now, on the top portion of the ark was what's called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. This was essentially a slab of gold with cherubim fashioned on it, their wings facing back over the golden slab. Later Old Testament passages tell us explicitly that Yahweh himself was enthroned on the cherubim. And in fact, in Exodus 25:22, if you have your Bible open, Yahweh says there that he would meet Moses above the mercy seat between the two cherubim and Yahweh would speak to Moses from that specific place. Again, it's important for us to see that the primary focal point of the presence of Yahweh and the voice of Yahweh in the tabernacle was there between the two cherubim on top of the atonement cover. Now, on the annual day of atonement, Leviticus 16, the high priest was to sprinkle the blood of a bull and a goat on the atonement cover, And the blood sprinkled there symbolized and signified the covering of sin. The sin in question was the breaking of God's law, a law that was engraved on stone tablets that lay inside the ark just underneath the blood-spattered atonement cover. A picture begins to come together here. The two cherubim on the atonement cover faced toward one another with their heads turned downward toward the atonement cover and by inference their heads were also turned downward toward the law engraved on the tablets just underneath the cover. 
The cherubim prior to Exodus 25:18, where we have mention of the golden cherubim of the tabernacle, the only other mention of cherubim prior to prior to that verse in Exodus is at is at Genesis 3:24 where actual cherubim had been positioned at the east entrance of the Garden of Eden to do what? To guard access to that place where God's presence had been the most palpable. So that the golden cherubim atop the Ark's atonement cover probably symbolize a guarding of the holy presence of God. Now God can only be accessed by the blood sprinkled on the atonement cover once per year, which atones for the breaking of God's law, which is engraved on the tablets just underneath the cover. The Ark of the Covenant was the place of atonement, we need to understand, and it was the place of the presence of the royal king who would accept the atonement. All right, so why have we labored so much to describe these various aspects of the ancient Old Testament tabernacle this morning? And we could go on with many other descriptions of things in the tabernacle. What possible meaning does all of this have for us who live in North America in 2017? Let's work everything toward a conclusion now. Fast forward from these chapters in Exodus to the time of King David. In David's day, God had given rest to Israel in the land. Israel now lived in peace after long years of battling. In that moment of peacetime, David announced his desire to transition God's house from mobile tent or tabernacle to a permanent temple. And according to 1 Chronicles 28... God gave David the blueprint for the temple. And David amassed a wealth of materials for the project. David sought out skilled craftsmen. David brought together a workforce for the temple. Yet, the scriptural record shows that it wasn't David who built the temple, but rather his son, Solomon. 1 Kings 8 gives us the record of the dedication of Solomon's completed temple. It was, of course we know, a lavish edifice that would stand for centuries until it was destroyed at the hands of Babylon in 587 B.C. Shortly before that devastation of Solomon's temple, Ezekiel 10 and 11 tell us that God's glory departed from the temple In Ezekiel 43, a return of the glory of God was prophesied for a future temple. But in Ezra chapter 6, at the dedication of the second temple, once the people have come back from exile, they've rebuilt the temple, at that dedication we have no record of God's infilling glory coming into that second temple. The Old Testament ends with the second temple raised up, but no explicit or implicit notice is given that God occupied the building. Now, friends, all of this should make us gasp in awe as we read the documents that begin the New Testament. Because what's going on there? 
Matthew 1.23 tells us that the whole idea of God with us has changed radically. Now God will not dwell in any building per se. Rather, God comes to dwell, to make his dwelling place in human flesh. In the flesh and bone person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. God had promised all along that he would dwell, walk among his people and be their God. Exodus 29.45, Leviticus 26.12, etc. He had said that he would dwell in the midst of his people. Exodus 25.8, Zechariah 2.10. Now in the advent of Jesus, listen, we have God himself tabernacling or tenting to use the Greek word that is in John 1.14, tabernacling among us. John 1.14 says literally, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In true tabernacling fashion, Jesus abides, abides with his people, John 6.56 and John 15.4.5. He makes a home with his people, John 14.23. And just as it was with the tabernacle of Exodus, so it is with Jesus. His presence with the people is a mobile presence. Jesus sojourns with people who are on the way to use the language of Mark 10.32. And the same glory that filled the Exodus tabernacle in Exodus 40 characterizes Jesus at his appearance. As John 1.14 says, we have seen what? His glory. Jesus is the glory of God, the glorious presence of God come in the tent of human flesh. And Jesus himself says some stunning, radical things. He says that he is the replacement of the temple. John 2, verses 19 through 21, which is a fact confirmed also in Revelation 21, 22. There's going to be no need for a temple in the new creation. Why? Because God and the Lamb are the temple. Jesus says in another place that he is greater than the temple. Matthew 12.6 Indeed. Beginning in the days of the new covenant, the locus and focus of God's presence on earth was no longer in any building, but rather in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is God come in the flesh to tabernacle among us in the muck and mire of human life on this earth. The replacement of the temple, Jesus, to do more biblical theology here, he also serves as the final once-for-all temple sacrifice. 
Hebrews 9.26 and Hebrews 10.12. Jesus fulfills the function of the Ark's atonement cover, Romans 3.25. Jesus is also the high priest of the temple, Hebrews 2.17 and 3.1. Jesus is temple curtain, Hebrews 10.20. His flesh is the curtain. He is the light of the temple, John 8.1. And he is the bread of the temple, John 6.35 and John 6.48. And here's where it gets personal for you, believer. The church is made up of believers in Jesus, meaning that we, as born-again, regenerate believers, are in union with the true and final temple, Jesus Christ. By virtue of that union, we are called the temple. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2, we, the church, are characterized by the glory of God, according to John 17.22, the words of Jesus there, and 2 Corinthians 3.18 and 2 Corinthians 4.6. The glory of God, the glory is in the temple, God's presence now indwells the church. The Spirit indwells us, Romans 5, 5, Galatians 4, 6, Titus 3, 5, and 6. We are the mobile home of God. Do you understand yourself that way, church? We are the mobile home of God. It is the church who are to go out into all the world and do what? Display the glory of God to the nations, the reality of God to the nations, the presence of of God to the nations and love of God to the nations. Do we understand the lofty, high calling that God has bestowed on us as the church? May God be glorified by our witness in this world as his temple. Now there is a day coming, finally, the new creation. There is a day coming when the final and full measure of God's literal face-to-face tabernacling presence among his people, lost in Genesis 3, will again saturate the entire earth. Revelation 21.3. In the meantime, I want to encourage you this week, live out the vows of your baptism. Live out the vows of your baptism. Be the temple of God, the presence of God, in the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in many cases we have settled for a low view of your kingdom and what it is you are up to in your world. Because in many cases we have laid our Bibles aside, we don't know the story. And so we ask your forgiveness, we ask as we repent of that now, that your Holy Spirit this week would help us and build a new fire in us, a fire to glorify you, to know in the depth of our bones what it is you are doing and who you are. 
Father, may we revel in the study and reading prayerfully of our Bibles. Help us, Lord, in our priorities, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God and of the Lamb, go into all the world. Go forth with forgiveness and grace. Go forth with compassion and love. And go in the strength he provides in Jesus' name. Amen.